0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Welcome back. We had a break for Thanksgiving, and now we return to our study of John's gospel. So if you are joining us perhaps for the first time, this is an ongoing study of the fourth gospel. And right now we are in John chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 8. If you haven't brought your Bibles, well, well, no, I'm, what he said. Uh, So John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. We've already seen thus far in this eighth chapter of John that Jesus' comments to the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, have been particularly pointed. In the verses that immediately precede the section that I've just read to you, Jesus has already said to them that unless they believe in him, they will perish in their sins. We pointed out a couple of weeks ago that there are two ways to die. We're all going to die, of course, unless the Lord comes back in glory. We're all going to die. We all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. And there are two ways to die. You can die in the Lord. The scripture says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, or you can die in your sin. But every single one of us is going to die in one of those two ways. You're either going to die in the Lord, which leads to everlasting joy and felicity, or you are going to die in your sins, which leads to everlasting darkness and separation from God. So Jesus has been very pointed with the Jewish religious leaders at this point. And of course they hadn't believed, they had hardened their hearts, but we're told there were some that did believe in him. As he was saying these things, we're told in verse 30 of John chapter eight, many did believe in him. Uh, this is one of the things that we notice wherever the gospel is preached, it was not only true with Jesus, it was also true it was a, for the apostles. In fact, this became the pattern for the ministry of the apostle Paul If you read the book of Acts from about the 13th chapter to the end, you'll notice that wherever Paul went and he preached the gospel, it always produced division in the community. Division between those who accepted the message and those who rejected the message. And on the part of those who rejected the message, they inevitably stirred up persecution against Paul and his companions, and they were driven from place to place. That's one of the reasons why Paul was so itinerant. We say, why didn't he spend more time in particular places? Well, one of the reasons is because those who rejected the message stirred up persecution against the apostles. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us, because even Jesus said that he had not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And that didn't mean that Jesus was a troublemaker or a rabble-rouser. It simply means that that is what the truth inevitably does. The truth is like light, and it will differentiate the day from the night. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. There are some who believe, and there are some who do not believe. But for those who did believe, Jesus went on to say this. This is rather curious in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice that Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, it's not enough simply to believe with your mind. Something else is required if you are going to be a genuine disciple. And that word disciple simply means follower. It's sometimes used in a very specific way in the Gospels to describe the twelve. And sometimes it's used in a generic way to describe all those who are following Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talked about being the bread of life, for example, we're told that many of the people grumbled and said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And the text says, many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. So the word means a follower. And Jesus is saying here that really, if you want to be a true follower, a genuine follower, you will not only hear the word, you will not only believe it intellectually, but he says you will do what? You will abide in it. This reminds us that there are really two kinds of belief. And one of them is enough to save a person and the other is not. Really there's a difference, if you think about it, between believing in Jesus and believing on Jesus. Now you say, well, what's the difference between those two? What's the difference between believing in and believing on? What's the difference, if you will, between verse 30 and what Jesus is talking about in verse 31? The best illustration that I know of this, and there are other illustrations, I've used this one before, but I think it really makes the point It is the example of Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known by his stage name as Blondin. Now, Blondin was a famous acrobat in the 19th century in the early part of the 20th century. And he was primarily known for his feats of acrobatic skill at Niagara Falls. And uh, what he would do is he would walk a tightrope across The Canadian Falls, the the famous horseshoe-shaped falls. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's very impressive. It's a bit of a tourist trap, quite frankly, but but the falls themselves are one of the wonders of the world. They are just extraordinary. If you've never been there, I encourage you to go. It's it's worth the trip to see it. And, And go ahead and take the trip down behind the falls, to what they call the Cave of Winds, and you'll just see the power of nature. It's just extraordinary. The roar is deafening. Well, people used to come to see Blondin do a tightrope walk across the Horseshoe Falls. You know, if you fall, it's death. And there were no nets. There was nothing. He would simply walk across the falls. One of his most famous feats was that he would go out into the middle of this tightrope Strung across the Canadian Falls, and he would cook an omelette. But his most famous feat was that he had an assistant that he would carry across on his shoulders. Now, you had to be very courageous to do that. And um, one time he carried this man across and then turned around and carried him back to the side he started from. Well, there was a huge crowd that had gathered. As I said, this is in an age before television and social media. So people really traveled far distances to see this sort of thing. And the crowd was cheering wildly when Blondin made it back across. And um, he looked at this one man who was cheering loudly in the front, and he said, sir, do you think I could do that with you? And the man said, of course, I just saw you do it. It was a feat of amazement. I've never seen anything like it. And Blondin said, well then, climb up on my back. And the man said, not on your life. Well, that's the difference, you see, between believing in and believing on. The man certainly believed in Blondin. He recognized that Blondin was capable of carrying a man across on his shoulders. He had been a witness to it, but he was not about to trust his own life to Blondin. Well, that's the difference between believing in Jesus and believing on Jesus. Jesus, there are many people who believe in Jesus. They stand up and they say the creed every Sunday without ever crossing their fingers, but they have never personally placed their trust, their confidence for their eternal salvation in Christ. Their faith is at best intellectual assent, And Jesus makes it very clear here. And we'll see elsewhere that that is not enough. James, uh, in his epistle, which Martin Luther, wrongly I might say, referred to as a right strawly epistle. Martin Luther didn't particularly like the epistle of James. He thought it would emphasize, was on works and not on grace. But I think Martin Luther uh, misunderstood what James was saying. Turn to James for just a moment. James is a powerful letter because James wants to be sure that what we have is an authentic and genuine faith. James chapter two. James is talking about works in the Christian life. And the reason that Luther didn't like it, as I said, is he thought that James might be implying, or at least confusing people, as to whether works could save a person. James is not really saying that works save anybody. We know that that's not the case. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But Jesus, as well as Paul, make it very clear that there is a place for works in the Christian life. The works are the evidence. They are the fruit. They are the proof of salvation. And that's really what James is talking about it. If you look at verse 14 he says what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food the one who says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead He goes on, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you will do well. But even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, the devil's not an atheist. He's not even an agnostic. He absolutely believes in God, absolutely believes in Christ, believes in intellectually speaking, but does not trust in God nor trust in Christ. It's really interesting to note that in the New Testament, particularly in the apostolic era, when the apostles went from place to place, the very first people to recognize them as messengers of God were people who were possessed of demons. Ever noticed that? They were the very first people incidentally to recognize Jesus. A demoniac came out of the caves on one occasion and said to Jesus, Son of the Most High, what would you have to do with me? And you know that Jesus cast the demons out of the man and into the herd of pigs and the swine went hurtling off the cliff. But it's interesting that many of the people, even the disciples at that point in Jesus' ministry were still asking questions as to his true identity. But here was a man, a demoniac, who was possessed of multiple demons who immediately recognized Jesus. You have another example of that in Acts chapter 16. It's the story of the apostle Paul and his traveling companion, Timothy. They had been traveling throughout the world and they had made it to Philippi. And they were arrested and uh, they were thrown, excuse me, it was Titus, not Timothy. They were arrested and they were thrown into prison And um, the reason they were thrown into prison is interesting. It's because, we're told, they were out preaching the gospel and there was this girl, a slave girl, who was following them and shouting at the top of her lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you the way to be saved. Now, everything she was saying was absolutely true. She was a slave girl, but we're told she was possessed of a demon. Actually, the Greek is really interesting here. The Greek says she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona. That is the spirit of the python, the spirit of the snake. Now, what's that all about? Well, not far from Philippi in the first century, there was a great temple to the god Apollo. And Apollo was the deity who was associated with the snake. Now, there are multiple stories as to why he was associated with the snake. Some stories said that he had actually turned himself into a snake at one point. Others suggested that, no, he had killed a great snake and thrown it down into a crevice, and it was from this decaying body of this snake that the fumes would rise and the mediums would be able to foretell the future and so forth. Well, whatever it was, this girl was said to be possessed of this spirit, this spirit of the god Apollo, this pagan deity, the spirit of Pythona, the spirit of the snake, And she's following Paul and his companions, and she's shouting at the top of her lungs, this man is a servant of the Most High God, and he has come to show you the way to salvation. Now, what's interesting is that everything she was saying was absolutely true. Those men were servants of the Most High God, and they had come to tell people the way of salvation. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed girl is probably not what you're hoping for. And the result was that we're told after several days, Paul eventually turned around and he rebuked the spirit and he came out of the girl, which was good news for her, but not good for her masters, who we're told made a great deal of money by using her. And the result is that Paul and his companions were charged with advocating customs, not lawful for Romans to practice, and they were ultimately in prison. Now, you may know the end of the story, they ultimately would be delivered by God. But the point is interesting, isn't it? That this girl, this Stephen possessed girl there in Philippi was the first person to recognize these men, recognize that they were servants of the Most High God, and recognize the fact that they had come to tell people the way of salvation. Did she believe on Christ? no not at this point at any rate so the scripture says it's intellectual assent. simply believing is not enough simply being able to stand up in church every Sunday following the sermon and say the words of the creed without crossing your fingers that's a starting point but Jesus wants us to understand here in John chapter 8 it is by no means the ending point that is not enough You must take the next step. You must trust personally in Christ. And that was for the problem for many of these people back here in John chapter eight. That's why Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. True faith makes a difference. That's one of the ways you can know if you're saved or not, if you really are, transferred from the realm of darkness into the realm of life. You can know that by the way you are living your life. Has a change taken place? Is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? You've heard me say this before. There are really three elements to true biblical faith. They're understood by the Latin terms notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Notitia means head knowledge. In order to truly believe in Christ, you have to understand who Christ is. We live in a culture in which many people make Christ out of their own image. You know, people will sometimes, you've heard me say this before, sometimes people will say, well, I could never believe in a God who could send somebody to hell. That's not true. They can believe in such a God. What they really mean is they don't want to believe in such a God. And so what they do is they create a God in their own image, a God to their own likeness. They do basically what the children of Israel did when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the tablets, they did what? They took off their jewelry and they melted it down and were told out came this golden calf. It was a God that they could control. It was a God that they could coddle. It was a controlled God. Not that wild God up there on the mountain and thundering and Lightning. Well, that's what we do with Jesus. Well, we get a domesticated Jesus. But in order to have true biblical faith, we need to understand who Jesus is. We need to understand what he claimed. John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's the claim of Jesus. Now, people find that offensive today. When you say that in church, people say, well, I'd rather Jesus be a way, a truth, a life, or Jesus may be the way for me, but he's not the way for you. We need to understand that that's not what Jesus himself claimed. He claimed that there were not many ways to God. There was one way to God, and every other way was a dead end. So the first aspect of true biblical faith is to understand who Jesus really is, who Jesus really claimed to be. But there's a second part to true biblical faith, and that is a census, that is agreement with that. You not only need to understand who Jesus is and who he claimed to be, you have to be in agreement with that. There are many people out there in the world, scholars, professors, many of them at seminaries today, who would say, yes, I understand what Christianity teaches, but I don't believe it. I don't ascribe to it. In order to have true biblical saving faith, you've got to understand what Christianity teaches, but you also have to be in agreement with it. Somebody asked me, just as we were beginning today's class, he said, why is it that we use a different version of the creed than the one is in the new prayer book? Well, actually, we don't. Um, In the new prayer book, you're given an option. There is a printed version, and then there's a footnote at the bottom that says, if you turn to page such and such, you can use the alternative version of the creed. Now, the the one that's printed in the Prayer book is the one that says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and we use the I believe version of that. Now, why do we do that? Well, for two reasons. One is because that is the way it has been at St. Philip's since time immemorial. <laughs> and what's the point of rocking the boat? I mean, let's be honest. But the other reason is because I think when we stand to say the creed, it's not enough for your neighbor to speak on your behalf, you have to be able to say, I believe these things. It may be true that your neighbor believes them, but the real question is do you believe these things? That there is one God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God created the world out of nothing, that Jesus Christ came into this world to be born in great humility, to die an ignominious death upon the cross, to rise for our, resurrect, for to be resurrected, to be raised for our justification. We believe that the Holy Spirit really is the Lord, the giver of life. These are things that we have to believe for our, selves, that's the census. We have to be in agreement with these things. But then there's a third part of biblical faith, and that's what Jesus is really talking about here in John chapter eight. That's the fiducia part. That is the trusting part. We have to be willing, like that man that Blondin challenged to climb up on his back. You and I personally have to be willing to climb onto Jesus Christ, as it were, and trust in him personally for our very salvation. Let me ask you the question. If you were to stand before God today, if Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of Advent after all, if Christ were to come back in glory and majesty today, or if God were to call you home today, and you were to stand there before that great white throne of judgment, and God asks you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into the eternal kingdom? What would your answer be? I think some people probably wouldn't know what to say. But what would you say? Well, are you going to say something to the effect, well, Lord, I I tried to do the best that I could? Are you gonna point to some act of kindness in your past? Are you gonna point to some association with some particular society? What's your answer going to be? Are we trusting completely, solely in Jesus Christ, or are we appealing to anything else for our salvation? Well, you'll know if you're appealing to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone by the way you live your life. By the fruit that is being produced in your life. And when I've said fruit before, you understand that it doesn't mean good works as the world understands good works. There are many things that the culture or society or your neighbor is going to say, well, that was a good act. That was a nice thing that you did. You understand that when we're talking about good works here, we're talking about the works that God alone produces in the believer's life. What does God ultimately want to do with us? What is ultimate salvation? Many people think that ultimate salvation is being able to get your ticket punched and go to heaven when you die. It's escaping the late great planet Earth. But really, salvation is everything that he, you need to be, everything that he wants you to be. And what that means is that true salvation is being made into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the best that God can give you, is to make you into the image of his son so that when he looks at you, instead of seeing your flaws, your blemishes, your faults, your sins, what does God see? He sees the image of his very own son. That is the process of sanctification. So the good works that we're talking about here are those works that are evidence of a Christ-like nature. The fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. Do you see those things in your life? Now you may look back over your life and say, well, I don't see much love or peace, or patience, or kindness, or goodness, or faithfulness, or gentleness. The question is this, not have you arrived. Sanctification is a lifelong process. But you should, as you look back over the course of your years, from that moment that you say that you trusted in Christ, you should see yourself growing in grace. You should see yourself becoming more loving, more peaceful, more kind. You should see fruit in your life. Now, if there's not enough fruit there, rest assured, God will come along and prune you. That's what he promises to do. He will prune you. That's what Jesus said. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will what? Bear much fruit it's interesting that he says the same thing here in John chapter 8 we've even gotten to that idea of Jesus being the true vine that's later on in this gospel but he says the same thing if you abide in my word I am the vine you are the branches abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing and then Jesus talks about pruning there are times in our lives when God will prune us and let's be honest that can be painful but the whole point is that we might be fruitful Christians. Even the pain that God allows to come into our lives ultimately can be redeemed and will be used for our good. And that's why Jesus says, if you really are believing in me and really are trusting in me, he said, you will find that to be absolutely liberating. You'll find it liberating. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. That's what God wants to do. He wants to liberate us, He wants to set us free. The implication here is that you and I are in bondage. You and I are captive, and what God wants to do is to set us free. Well, what is freedom? You know, that's a precious word in an American's vocabulary, freedom. We talk a great deal about it. You hear it all the time. What does it truly mean to be free? On January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered a very famous speech. It was called the Four Freedoms speech. The world, of course, was under the threat of tyranny and fascism, and he delivered this great speech. It was primarily about human rights. President Roosevelt talked about freedom of speech, freedom to say what you wanted. He talked about freedom of religion, the freedom to follow your conscience. He talked about freedom from fear, from the thought of oppression or threat. And he talked about freedom from want. Now, we call those human rights. That's what President Roosevelt, and that's what many Americans, facing the threat of fascism in the early 1940s, meant by freedom what do we mean by freedom today well many people understand freedom as the right or the ability to live as you please to do whatever you want without anybody else whatsoever telling you how to live telling you that the way you're living is right or the way you're living is wrong that's what we mean by freedom today freedom to do whatever I want well Jesus said if you abide in my word you will truly be my disciples you will know the truth and the truth will set you free what did Jesus mean by freedom Well, I can tell you this much Jesus did not mean the freedom to live our life any way we want that's not freedom that's license nor did Jesus simply mean what we would call the freedoms that we enjoy as American people. No, Jesus was talking about something very different. First of all, Jesus was talking about freedom from ignorance. Freedom from ignorance. We all realize that there is value in education. Every time there's an election cycle that rolls around, education always becomes a hot topic because we recognize the value of education. We understand that education and knowledge are what? Liberating, aren't they? The more you know about how the world is, the more liberated you are. We also understand that if a person doesn't have much education, If you have a college education, you can go further oftentimes than a person with a high school education. If you don't have a high school education, you can't go very far at all. And think about a person who is illiterate. What kind of a job can an illiterate person do? Only the most menial of tasks. We recognize that education is liberating. That's one of the reasons why we want to push our children so hard these days. So they can go out and be liberated and be free. But when Jesus talks about freedom from ignorance, what he's really talking about is freedom from ignorance when it comes to spiritual matters. Because most of us live in darkness. We're ignorant of God. We may know about him simply because God has revealed himself in the things that have been made, but very few people in the world today actually know God personally. But Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And it's really interesting, it's in that context, it's in the context of that great statement about being the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus is talking about, he's going away, and one of his disciples comes up to him and says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have I been with you? And you still do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Everybody in this world is out there desperately searching for something. The old country western song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. And that's exactly what many people are doing today. They're out there desperately searching for God. They're looking for peace. They're looking for contentment. They're looking for joy in their lives. And they can't understand why they acquire everything that the world says is necessary in order to attain that, and yet they still feel empty. And the reason is simple. Because those things can only be found in a relationship with the one who made us. They can only be found in a knowledge of God. And what Jesus is saying is, you come to know me and you will come to know God. And in coming to know God, you will find out everything that you need about yourself. And you will find everything that your heart longs for. You shall know the truth, and I am the truth, and the truth will what? set you free from your ignorance. Of course, Jesus wasn't just talking about freedom from ignorance as to spiritual matters. He's talking about freedom from bondage, liberation, deliverance from bondage to sin. And when Jesus talked about free being freed from the bondage to sin, he was talking about three things in particular. First of all, he was talking about being freed from the penalty of sin. The scriptures are unanimous on this. All have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, let's assume that the scripture is correct. How many sinners do we have out there this morning? All All right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And Paul says, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. So we're all sinners and the wages of sin death now somebody might say well I'm not a big sinner (laughs) it's only a little bit of sin that's like saying you know asking the question how rotten is rotten meat doesn't matter if there's a little bit of rot or a lot of rot it's rotten so we are all sinners and we're all under a penalty it's a death penalty Even the smallest amount of sin kills you, spiritually speaking. So we're all under a penalty of death. But Jesus says, you come to know me, and I will pay the price for your sin. I will set you free from that penalty. That's what the cross is all about, folks. That's why Jesus Christ came into this world. We say it every Sunday, this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners, save them from what? Well, part of it is to save us from the penalty of sin, which is death. That we might die with him and be resurrected with him. Here's something else that Christ does when it comes to sin. He liberates us from the power of sin. The very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. Is there anybody out there that can resonate with that statement? Every single one of us can. Try as we might, we cannot break free. We know what we ought to do, but we can't do it. What is that a description of? there's something I want to do something I long to do but I cannot do it I'll tell you what that is a description of that is a description of bondage you are kept from doing or getting the very thing that you want something is holding you back well for many of us it's what we call besetting sins I don't know what it is in your life maybe it's anger Maybe it's a sexual sin, whatever it is, there's something in your life that holds you back. You're in bondage. That don't feel bad, we're all in bondage. We all have that. Your sin may be different from my sin, but we all have it and we can all relate to that statement. And yet Paul says, the very things I wanna do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then he goes on to say, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, you will know me and know the truth, and the truth will set you free, he's saying, I can set you free from the penalty of sin, which is death. I can also set you free from sin's power. Because you see, God the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. And his is the power by which the world was created. It is his power which can live within you and give you the strength, the wherewithal, to resist the very things that up to this point you found impossible to resist. So Christ says, come to me, trust in me. Don't just believe intellectually. Place your whole confidence in me and I will set you free. I'll set you free from ignorance. You'll come to know God. And not just know about Him, but know Him personally. And in coming to know Him personally through me, because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what will happen is I will deliver you from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and one day, this is the great promise, I'll deliver you from sin's presence. One day we're going to be delivered from sin's presence. We're not going to be able to sin anymore. Because in glory, we are going to be made like unto Christ. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? Don't think for one minute, my friend, that you are free. Oh, the world talks a great deal about freedom. Everybody thinks that they're free, but the reality is we're not, and we know it. That's why most of us live lives of frustration. It's because we're not free we're not free to do everything that we want to do you do children a great disservice incidentally when you tell them they can be whatever they want to be no they can't they're never going to be a rocket scientist if they can't do math it's as simple as that we cannot be everything that we want to be everything we desire to be in and of our own strength we need to be liberated We need to be delivered. And Jesus said, I can do that. Every one of us is a slave. This is one of the great ironies of the Christian faith that it's in giving up your so-called freedom and trusting in Christ and submitting to his rule in your life that you find true liberation. And it's in following the ways of the world and truly being free, doing whatever you want, letting it all hang out, that ultimately you find yourself in bondage. Follow Jesus Christ and his is a service, it is true, but it is a service of perfect freedom. 1979, Bob Dylan came out with a song. How many Bob Dylan fans do we have out there? Well, He got it right in this song. The song is entitled, You've Gotta Serve Somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. The song goes on like that, and it always ends with that same refrain You're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher preaching spiritual pride, maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side, maybe working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, come to me, abide in my word, follow my word, live a life in accord with mine, and I'll set you free. It will be a service of perfect freedom. Liberated from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and one day from sin itself. That, my friends, is to be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was willing to be so pointed with the Jewish religious leaders. It didn't win him any popularity points with them, we know. But it was a message of liberation. And for those who were willing to submit to his kingly rule in their lives, they did find true freedom. Not independence, but true liberation and a joy unspeakable. If there be any here today who have never really submitted to Christ, oh, they may be saying the words without crossing their fingers, but they've never really trusted in Him alone. And have asked Him to come in and sit on the throne of their lives and rule over them. If they have not really submitted and they look at their lives and they don't see a submission, they don't see the fruit of the Spirit, then, Lord, trouble their hearts, prick their conscience, give them no rest until they are willing to bow the knee and find in Jesus all the freedom, liberty, and joy that they long for. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.